there we go. All right, grace and peace. We are in Luke chapter 12. If you turn there with me, Luke 12, verses 49 through 53. Luke 12, 49 through 53. All right. Luke 12, 49 through 53. Starting in verse 49. I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Father, be with us today, we ask. Be with me, Lord. Be with us. May we worship you in the preaching and in the hearing of your word. Keep us awake. Keep us alert. This passage that these passages we have been on talk about being ready, being dressed for action. May you do that for us today. God, there are many that are slumbering in the body, complacent in the body, lack urgency in the body. And I pray, Lord, that this will quicken us to repentance, to change, to transformation, to renewal, to a greater, greater commitment to you. Bring life. Where there is death, open ears, open eyes. We ask and plead. You are the vine, we are the branches. Father, you are the vine dresser. We are only recipients, Lord God, of the work you do. We are not those who do the work. We are recipients of the work of Christ. And so, Lord, help us to rest and trust in you. May your word bring conviction. May it bring repentance. May it bring admonition. But, Lord, I pray it would also build up your church. We yearn for your word as a deer pants for water. Be with us today, we ask in Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. 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 So last week, Brandon preached from Luke 12, 35 to 48. You want to reference that? It's already on our YouTube channel. Where Jesus told his disciples in the present crowds to be dressed for service and to keep their lamps burning as though they were waiting for the master to return from a wedding feast. And so we see there's a sense of urgency that's continual in this passage. Jesus said that it would be at that time that they would be ready to open the door and let him in in the moment he arrived and knocked. Now Jesus used an illustration to make a point of needing to be ready and prepared for his coming, right? 
And so this prompted Peter to ask Jesus whether that illustration was just for them or for everyone. And then if you could look back with me in Luke 12, 42 to 46, it says, And the Lord said, Who then is the faithful and wise manager whom his master will set over his household to give them their portion of food at the proper time? He's responding to Peter's question. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. Strong imagery and language from Christ. Jesus made the point that when someone has been given much, much will be required in return. And when someone has been entrusted with much, even more will be needed when that day comes. And so this was to stir within those in his hearing a sense of urgency for what was to come. He wanted them to stay dressed for action, and he wanted them to keep their lamps burning like men waiting for the master to return. And so Jesus then continues in our text to reveal one of the challenges to that urgency. He begins to speak of how living for him would challenge those within families. Well, you have a conversion in the family. Well, they turn from what they believe in their family. To turn to what is true. Now Jesus came already in our text to reveal that believing in him means abandoning everything. Even the beliefs and practices that go contrary to the Christian faith. Now you know I was thinking about this like it might seem foreign to us in our culture here today in America. Because of how secular our culture has become. Christianity in our faith somehow is separate from our way of living or our culture, right? When you see Muslims, right, as an example, you see head coverings, you see certain things that would, you already see in their clothing that they are different. What they eat is governed by what they believe, right? There's a distinction, you can see that. Not so here in America, and I'm not saying it's a bad thing, what I'm saying is it's a reality. When we read in our text what we're reading today, we're very culturally disconnected. So this may seem foreign in our context here in America because of how secular our culture is. But for those, let's say, who are Roman Catholic, as an example, which I've run into in my family, a lot of Hispanics are Roman Catholic. To have someone convert to the Christian faith and say that Roman Catholicism is apostate and false, this would come with a great price. And at times, I've experienced myself angered. I was in the hospital visiting a family member's child, and they were strong Roman Catholic. And the priest comes up like this, showing off his badge. You know, I don't have a hospital badge yet. I'm working on that. You know, but he got his access, and he's like, he can go in wherever he wants, whenever he wants. And his chin up, like he's proud and all that. I'm here, you know, just like this, and I'm a pastor. And they're very strong about the child being baptized in the Roman Catholic faith, to which I disagreed. 
and it became a point of contention within our family. At times, it's come with anger and tension within family members, this issue. This happens with those who convert to Christianity from a Muslim or Hindu background, and most religions that where religion and faith and culture are inextricable, they're interwoven within the family. Though it may cause much tension within the family, a conversion of one within a family that has a practice that goes against the Christian faith, if someone indeed comes to genuine faith in Christ and causes tension in the view of eternity, it's worth it. It's worth it. To cause family beef because of faith. It's worth it when we look back in eternity. This is precisely what Jesus came to do. You know, Jesus says he came to bring fire. That fire will start within homes because of the faith of those who come to believe in Christ. And the way Jesus would do this is by his death and resurrection. His death and resurrection are the means by which we can be converted. And once converted, if our family has a practice that goes against the Christian faith, then tension begins. And our text today speaks of this reality which Jesus says he came to bring. So, note takers, point number one, we see the fire of Christ in verse 49. The fire of Christ. Point number two, the baptism of Christ in verse 50. The baptism of Christ. And then last, third point, the division from Christ. The division from Christ in verses 51 to 53. So point number one, the fire of Christ in verse 49. What does Jesus mean by casting fire on earth? One thing to remember is to let the clear govern the unclear. Okay, that when you're reading your Bible, you, you have questions about a particular verse or a saying in it. Read before and read after. Amen. That's how we read our Bibles, to understand that if there's any clarity before and after, that clarity will provide clarity for the unclear in the middle. In the latter part of our passage, it is clear that Jesus says he came to bring division. Jesus said in verse 49, I came to cast fire. And then in verse 51, he says, I have come not to bring peace, but division. So from the original language, I did some research, it points back to what Jesus had done already. Most translations say, I have come, which denotes a past action. I believe this is speaking of his incarnation, his entering into the world. That's the, the greater significant event that happened prior to Jesus speaking here, that he was born of a virgin. He came into the world. And then the passage is saying he came not to bring peace, but division. He came to bring fire. I'm like, I don't like fire. <laughs> Unless you're, you know, like getting warmth from it, but that's not the language here. This type of fire is meant to burn. This is what he came to bring. Now, Calvin believed that the fire Jesus was talking about here was the gospel. I was talking with Micah the other day, and we disagree with Calvin on this. However, fire here seems to be in line with how Luke used it in his gospel. One other thing to clarify is that Jesus did not come to judge the world. He came to save it. 
So we see Jesus bringing fire. He came to bring fire and division. But we also see that Jesus came not to judge the world, but to save it. We see this in John 12, 47. Here, it speaks more about what he would do. The division would occur due to his coming, namely the work of his death and resurrection. So what we're reading here is really an after effect of what he came to do, namely that he would die for the sins of his people. That was his mission. But there's repercussions to that mission. There's repercussions to that. My family, who had Roman Catholic believers in it, me coming to faith and saying that the Roman Catholic system is works-based and apostate is a problem now. And now Theo Pito isn't Theo anymore. Pito's my family name. That's what they call me. Now it's like we got to keep distant from him because we don't want him to start influencing other Roman Catholic believers in our family. And before you know it, there's separation and tension within the family. Jesus came to do that. And the way he would do that, it's through his death and resurrection, it's, there's an after effect to that. He brings life to people and families. And so the first example uh, about fire here in the Gospel of Luke, when Luke, he talks about fire, it talks about an act of judgment. If you go to Luke 3, 9, you do see this language. Luke 3, 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You see this act of judgment of those who don't bear fruit, they'll be thrown into the fire. And then in verses 16 and 17 of the same chapter in Luke 3, this is John the Baptist speaking. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Holy Spirit good, fire bad. Verse 17 of Luke 3. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. He's talking about people, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is judgment. And that's why I think him using the, the picture of fire in our text develops that sense of urgency still. So we have examples, even in the Gospel of Luke, of fire as an act of judgment from God. And I believe fire here is judgment. And what judgment looks like is division within households. Jesus says he has come to set the world on fire, judgment, and desired that it was already burning. So if fire is division within households, why would Jesus desire that families would already be divided? That doesn't sound like a nice Jesus, does it? Jesus had an eternal perspective to consider here. There's a reason why Calvin thought the gospel, the fire, was the gospel. The cause of a divided household here is Jesus. And division is an act of judgment. In that case, a family member comes to faith because of what Jesus said, the gospel, it follows that a household will experience 
tension and division, especially in a family of Hebrews who see Jesus as contrary to what they believe. And so Jesus wished that it was the case that people came to faith already and that they would return to the families even if it caused them to be, to be divided. Because salvation, even if it comes to a house and it divides it, it's necessary. There's gospel proclamation taking place. Even if it causes tension and division, the gospel was shared. So salvation taking place within a family is an act of grace. And rejection of that witness is a result where they will be judged for their rejection. So this is not a cold desire to want families divided. Instead, it expresses a desire to see salvation take place, even if it means the division of a family. This is because a divided household, because of someone coming to faith, it's better than the household not having any faith at all. Amen? Amen. So the fire here is division as an act of judgment. It is to bear witness to the truth, even if faith in Christ causes it. This being what would happen as a result of his coming into the world makes Jesus feel pressed and eager for what he came to do that would bring this about. He would use baptism to communicate to the disciples and crowds of his death. A second point, the baptism of Christ in verse 50, he says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. So what does Jesus mean by having a baptism to be baptized with? Now Jesus used baptism to speak of his death in Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. He uses baptism to paint a picture of his death. He will be Dead, fully, not like other people believe where he might have died. No, he died, literally. The cup and baptism here in Mark chapter 10, where he uses imagery, is his suffering and death. In Romans 6, 4, Paul speaks of being buried with Christ by baptism into his death. He also uses baptism this way in Colossians 2, 12. So this language of baptism being his death is biblical. It's something we do see throughout scripture. And so the point here is that Jesus is speaking about being put to death. He is buried or baptized into death. This speaks to a literal death. He literally died. Muslims do not believe that Jesus died on the cross. Skeptics today refuse to believe that Jesus died at all and rose again to life. It sounds you know, I was watching a Joe Rogan podcast. He had a believer on there. It sounds absurd that someone would die and then three days later rise again. Liberal scholars have attempted to strip the supernatural reality of his death and resurrection. But Jesus used language, the language of baptism to say that he will be fully immersed in his death. He would literally die. Not he was asleep and then he came or someone else died in his place and it looked like Jesus died. No, we at Christ Alone Fellowship believe he literally died and was literally buried and he literally and bodily raised. Do you believe that? If you don't, 
1 Corinthians 15 says you're not a Christian. You cannot say, well, you know, he might have. I don't know. It sounds crazy. Let's talk about your soul. Our souls are dependent upon this truth. If he did not raise, how can we say we're raised? We're still in our sin. He died and rose so that you can be forgiven and justified. If that didn't happen, saints, we have no hope at all. We're the dumbest people on the planet for doing this. That's the language Paul uses. We of all people are most to be pitied. Because I'm coming to church. I'm doing all this ministry for what? If he's not in heaven living, I'm wasting my time. Because then there's only this. If there's only this, I might as well have a good time with this life only. But if I'm bearing my cross and sacrificing my and laying myself down because he is living, it's all worth it. Because it's not about this life only. There's an eternal life to go to now. My present sufferings are not worth to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed. That's why I live. That's why I go to church. That's why I serve at the block party. That's why I do everything I do. The reason why you struggle probably with so much today and you're so distracted is because maybe you don't have the eternal perspective Jesus has here. He's saying, I came to divide households. And he's saying that because if one converts in the household, especially in a Hebrew household, that person, historically, we've seen it. You got to get out. The family business is no longer yours. This inheritance was supposed to be passed on you. You're cut off. There were believers homeless for believing this. Abandoned by their families. This is what Jesus came to do. And he would do it through the baptism of his death. Why does Jesus express this here in our text? Well, he expresses this here because of his death and resurrection being the cause of divided households. There's a story of a man in the Middle East that I read about who faced threats from his family when he converted to Christianity. Do you know that he was kidnapped by his own father and uncle? You know he was beaten by them? And he also was shot with a nail gun by them? Because he professed faith in Christ? His own family. Threatening him, shooting at him, hitting him with things, telling him just don't convert to the Christian faith. And this brother persevered. This is what Jesus came to do. How can this be a good thing? Doesn't this sound somewhat insensitive? Like, how can this be a good thing at all? Well, if this is a result of the death and resurrection of Christ, how in the world can this be a good thing? I don't want to be shot with no nail gun. I don't want to be beaten by people that said they love me my whole life. I want some of the inheritance passed on to me. How can this be a good thing? 
How in the world can this be a good thing? Well, it isn't good if all there is is this world. And maybe that's your problem. Maybe you live like this is all there is. But if you understand there's a world to come, it's all worth it. The worldview that has in mind this world only should despair when a man converts and loses his family to the point of being kidnapped and shot by his own family members. But saints, this isn't all there is. When Jesus speaks of his death, he is not only looking at being buried. It is assumed that he would rise from the dead. Jesus came to bring a fire that would divide households. And he would do it by being buried in his death so that eternal life can be given to those who are dead in their sins. So he speaks about how much of a burden he has until his death is accomplished. The distress and burden Jesus is speaking of here means literally being straightened, restricted, or pressed. One Greek resource said of this as to press in and around so as to leave little room for movement. Jesus felt restricted. He may have felt a sense of being pressed at the moment, pressed in that as a man with a mission given to him. The sense of not doing what needed to be done may have had Jesus feeling this way. He felt distressed, pressed, and he pointed to his death as the end of that struggle. And his death was the end to our struggle. We've been set free. So it would bring division to households and suffering, but it would all be worth it because of eternal life being obtained and possessed. There will be a witness in homes where the gospel is not present. In the scope of eternity, this is a good thing. Facing threats from our own families because of faith in Christ. Being kidnapped by our own family members. Being beaten, shot with a nail gun is worth it. Yeah? Yeah? No, bro. No. Not worth it. If you live for this life only. Not worth it if Jesus remained dead in the grave. Not worth it if he didn't rise again from the dead. Not worth it if if this is fake here today. The emotions we experience in worship, maybe it was just emotional experiences. Maybe because of how Emer plays the piano, man, and how he does his thing and the drums and everything, the, the singers and the voice move your soul. Got you emotional. Not worth it. But if the content we sang is true, and he is alive, and he is Lord of our lives, if it's true that he will come back again, which this is the point of the text, we need to be ready. And being ready doesn't mean have it together, y'all. I ain't got it together. My family will tell you, and those close to me, my sister Odalis, she loves picking on me. You can ask her. Yeah, he's a hot mess, Pastor Lopes. <laughs> we ain't got this together yet. But do I live my life with a sense of urgency? When I do mess up, do I repent? When things are happening around me, do I go to prayer and really believe that he's alive to hear me? 
What do I do with my pain? Do I seek him as healer? Well, he ain't the healer if he ain't alive. And he's alive. I've seen the Lord work. I've seen him deliver me from my sin. I've seen him heal families. I've seen him heal addicts who were bound to heroin and not being able to set themselves free. And I see a testimony. I've seen God work. I've seen homeless people broke and now they have a family because God delivered them and strengthened their faith. You can't tell me he ain't alive. I've seen it. I've experienced it. And even though it came at the cost of family, it's all worth it. The death and resurrection of Christ brings hope when faced with division, even in the household, when faced with emotions and thoughts that there is only this world, we need to remember 1 Corinthians 15. Turn there with me, please. 1 Corinthians 15. First Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There is no afterlife, he's saying in verse 18. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are most to be pitied. We are no longer in our sins because Christ was raised from the dead. That's Paul's point. Because Jesus raised, I'm saved. Because Jesus raised, I'm delivered. Because Jesus raised, he's real. He's interacting with me. He loves me. He shows me grace because he's alive. He's not dead. He didn't stay in the grave. And when there's divisions, persecutions, afflictions, disputes, and strife, even within family saints, because of faith, it's worth it. We don't have hope in this life only. His death and resurrection point to the hope and life to come. We will be raised with him, which is our hope, even when faced with divisions, persecutions, afflictions, disputes, strife, being shot with the nail gun, being shot, being separated, arrested for our faith. It's all worth it. It's all worth it. And the reason why you haven't really shown desperation or like a sense of urgency is maybe because you don't have an eternal mindset here. Maybe presently, what I always tell people, I always repeat myself, you treat the temporal as eternal, and you treat the eternal as temporal. That's your problem. 
When you read the Bible, do you really believe this is words that are given to us for our instruction, that this is God's love letter to his church? We have five Bibles on a shelf and barely pick them up. They're everywhere. Jesus said, how great is my distress until it is accomplished, meaning that when he dies, the work will be finished, bringing eternal life. Saints, his finished work will fill the hearts of his elect to the point of repentance. And even if that results in conflict and persecution within the family, it's worth it. Christ is gained and God is glorified. And the hope for that divided house is there through the witness of the one who converted. Well, Jesus clearly shows that his work, the reason for his coming, will result in division. He came to give his life and to be raised from the dead so that people will come to faith. As a result, the division would take place. It would be inevitable. Our last point in closing, the division from Christ, verses 51 through 53 we see in verse 51, Jesus asking a question. He says, do you think that I have come to bring, to give peace on earth? Jesus answers in the latter part of the verse, no. I tell you, but rather division. So Jesus says he didn't come to bring, the word peace means harmony, freedom from worry, tranquility. He didn't come to bring that. He makes it clear that his intent in coming into the world was not to provide harmony within households, but division because of what would happen to someone in the family who comes to faith. This might be very insensitive to our American understanding of family, especially for those who worship a God called family. Now, I've seen people not be obedient for the sake of family. Family could become a God. I've seen it. Why would Jesus want division within households that he came to do that? Well, it, I don't think Jesus is saying that he takes pleasure in divided households. He's saying that it will be inevitable because of conversion. He's not so concerned with the Muslim family who has a son and he converts to faith. His greater concern is that salvation would take place even if it causes tension. So be it. Because in causing that tension because of conversion, the families that are causing the persecution are able now to see actual gospel witness. That's an act of grace. But it will be an act of judgment for the rejection. So Jesus is not taking pleasure in it. He's saying this is what he came to do. This is what would happen. It's the after effect of conversion. These examples are meant to be plain and not literal. Literal. When he talks about uh, three against two and two against three, where he talks about the household being divided, that would happen. You know, he's not talking like specifically like only three or two will be divided. He's just talking in general that houses would be divided. And then in verse 53, they will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. 
they will be divided because of what he will come to do. Can you imagine how devastating a broken relationship is between a father and a son over converting to Christian faith? Can you imagine uh, a Muslim father or a Jewish father and the son comes and says, I can't believe what you believe anymore. That would be devastating. Jesus is okay with that. Salvation is what matters most. The book of Micah conveys a dual message of judgment and hope. I believe Jesus quotes Micah 7, 6, where it says, For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. I do believe Jesus is somewhat referencing uh, Old Testament passages like the book of Micah that conveys a dual message of judgment and hope. The book of Micah predicts judgment upon Israel due to societal wrongs, corrupt leaders, and idol worship leading to the downfall of Samaria and Jerusalem. And then alongside this book, it foretells of the restoration and elevation of Israel and Jerusalem, showing hope and judgment coexist in the book of Micah. So this sounds harsh. There's fire, there's division, but it's all in the hopes that there will be gospel witness within the household. So it's not just this cold, callous, all good division. He's saying it's a result of him bringing faith to one within the family. So if a father is against their son because of their faith in Christ, they will be judged for their rejection. But if a father comes to saving faith because of the son's conversion, then to God be the glory. Amen? Amen. My grandmother was the first in my family to come to faith. And my grandmother was a witch. She was a, 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 into um, Spanish witchcraft. It's called Brujeria in, in, uh, in Puerto Rico. And she came to faith. She had, she had a worldview of the spiritual that was real. She repented. She, got her, she became a Sunday school teacher. And she was teaching the Bible. And at the time, I wasn't saved when she was in church. She, brought, she took me to church when I was little, and I, I didn't like it at all. It was too loud. You know, it's, it's, it's a Pentecostal fellowship, and so it was loud. Things were happening. I'm like, I got to get out of here. You know, I don't want to be there. So I never went back. But my grandmother, I remember one time I went to her house. She was sitting down, and her knees were all tore up. I said, oh, well, I could, you know, what happened to your knees? And she said, that's from praying for you, for my family. She had bruised knees from prayer. And I was, I was just like, wow. I came to faith afterwards through the prayers of my grandmother. Then through my witness, I was able to minister to my father. I used to have to clean up after my dad after his parties, cocaine, everything on the table, because I was afraid of the police coming in and busting our house over for, for this stuff. I had to clean up after my dad for his parties and everything. And I, one time, I, I shouldn't have done this. I did this out of zeal for, for his conversion. I pretty much preached loudly and in a frustrate, frustrative way to my father the gospel. And then 
My father would catch HIV AIDS. God used that to wake him up. He came to faith. The prayers of my grandmother, the conversion of my life was a witness to my father to come to faith and he died a Christian. That's good. That's good. But there's an also another side to that. I have family members joke on me and tell me I'm a hypocrite because in my teenage years as a Christian, I struggled with purity. They say, you're a hypocrite, man. I know what you do. They didn't see that I would go to church broken over my sin. I wanted freedom from lust. I made the mistakes. I wasn't a perfect Christian. I'm not a perfect Christian. They don't see the pain of conviction. The hours I spent in prayer with believers at Spanish Assembly of God, they would wake up, the elders, at six, six o'clock in the morning and pray and shout to, I would be there just listening while I'm fornicating. I was in sin. But I knew where to go. <laughs> I knew where to go. I went to the house of God and repented for my sin. And I got church discipline for six months. That's what they do at these churches. They got an actual window. You're six months. Discipline, now you got to sit in the back. That's what they did. And I'm glad they did it. Because they took holiness seriously. They took holiness seriously. I needed to sit back. I needed to sit and understand the gravity of my sin. But I didn't stay there. The elders embraced me again. They even allowed me to teach Sunday school again. They allowed me to congregate with them again and restored because of gospel witness. So even if it causes division and problems within the family, our faith is worth it. Luke 9, 24 to 25 says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So even if I have a divided house over my faith, it's worth it. Jesus is being proclaimed and God could still use it somehow. That's what Jesus is saying here, I believe. Let us pray. Father, we thank you. Be with us. Sometimes we don't feel like this is worth it. Lord, we feel like at times we're here and nothing happens. At times it feels like we're wasting our time. But Lord, would you deliver us from a temporary materialistic mindset that thinks this is all there is? Would you stir in Christ alone a heart for the eternal? That we will go back to our homes and be witnesses, even if it causes tension, even if it causes a splitting up of a family, May your truth be proclaimed. It's what you came to do. Help us, Lord, to be your church. 
And for those of my brothers and sisters struggling in their sin, who feel like they can't even begin to be a witness in their families, Lord, would you bring genuine repentance? Will you bring deliverance over those sins that have bound them? Lord, I pray that your spirit will lead them to conviction and repentance in such a way that they turn from their sin and turn to you and not desire what they've been doing. It's hard. I've had seasons as a young adult or seasons of struggling. But I thank you for the freedom you've given me. I pray you would give that to them. Freedom from pornography, freedom from lust, freedom from greed, freedom from autonomy, Lord God. Give our people what they need to be children. Lord, I thank you. You're here with us. Be with us.